Hi there, and welcome back to the State of Education, presented by One Room Education. I'm Katie, and today I'll be your guide as we discuss the roles that unions have played in education and whether that has been a net asset or loss for the students. We're going to be covering a wide range of topics today. We're going to be going over the creation of the public teachers' unions, how they grew in power, and then we'll be discussing their current hyper-politicized incarnations and the stranglehold that they have on our education system. I'll also be giving you my thoughts on ways that we can work together with teachers to help break the captive hold that public unions have been keeping on our classrooms and students here in America. So... Come on in and have a seat while we discuss the teachers' unions, good or bad, for your children. So this topic is gonna get a little sticky. Whenever you talk about unions in general, people have very strong feelings one way or the other, and especially especially when you're talking about teachers unions. People are either yay, rah, rah, go teachers union, best thing that was ever created, or they have no idea what you're talking about and teachers are awesome. So why would their union not be awesome too? So I want to make clear that anything that I'm saying during this episode is directed towards the political career union people, not the on the ground, average, everyday, doing the grunt work in the classroom frontline union member. That's not who I'm talking about for the most part during this episode. I'm going to be talking about the upper level regional and national union employees who work with the government. I understand both sides of this argument. I am the daughter of a union rep and when I was growing up, I heard discussions on different grievances that were being filed. I heard discussions about dangerous and hazardous work conditions in an already dangerous work environment. And my mom is a union nurse. So I've heard all the issues with staffing and all of that stuff. That was just general conversation in my household growing up. I know that that's irregular, but that is important for you to understand before I get into this conversation. And also, I understand the teacher side of it because my grandmother was an elementary school teacher for, I don't even know, probably like 30 years or something like that. And she loved her job. Watching her do her after school work, and doing all of her prep work and helping her with grading tests where I would put the sticker on the people that got the A's and stuff like that growing up. She is a large reason why I went into education because I saw how much she cared about her students and I saw all of the effort that she put into what she was doing with them. Now, As I got older, she talked to me rather frankly about the union and what was expected of her from a political standpoint, not from an academic career standpoint. We're going to talk about some of that coming up, but the first thing we need to do is we need to talk about the differences between the private and public sector unions. Let's go ahead and establish some history on the private sector unions and then some basic history on the teachers unions and we'll move on from there. 
private sector unions are something that most of us think about whenever we think about unions, right? We think of the coal miners and we think of the steel workers. That is what most people think of whenever they think of union members. My husband is currently a carpenter's apprentice with the carpenters union. So we are a huge pro-union family in the private sector. Now, why were these unions originally created? Public and private unions were originally created for relatively the same reasons. They were looking for a livable wage to be paid to their union members, and they were looking for fair and safe business practices, whether that was in a classroom for a police officer, whether it was a steel worker or a carpenter. It didn't matter. Every union was looking for the same thing. Let's go ahead and define what a union is. That way, everyone listening to this podcast is all on the same page. Because some people don't exactly understand what a union is, but they know they want to be a member of one. So let's talk about the difference between a union shop and a non-union shop. Let's make a scenario here. I used to work doing mortgage refinance paperwork. It was horrible. I do not suggest it. I hated it with a passion, but whatever, it paid the bills. So I went and I did this job and I got to a relatively high position within the scope of my job. I was a team lead and I was the head trainer for new hires. Now, the main thing that you need to know about this experience that I had was that it was a non-union facility. So what that meant was every single employee negotiated with the company individually and negotiated their pay. Benefits were what the benefits were. The company offered a general benefits package and that's what everybody got. But so far as your pay and to some extent, the hours that you worked were negotiated on an individual basis. And as part of your work agreement with this company, you were not allowed to talk to other employees about your pay. And we also weren't allowed to tell each other how much we got for our end of year bonuses because those varied depending on what your general pay rate was, how many hours you worked, and what your position was within the company. All of these things were on an individual basis. Now, when I became a team lead, I went and I talked with my bosses and I said, if I'm going to be taking on more responsibility, I expect you to pay me for that responsibility that I'm taking on. So I got a raise. Then one evening after everybody else had left the office, for some reason, my team members started talking about payday and they were, somebody was short an hour or two. So I had to make sure that that got taken care of. And I found out that I was making the least amount of money on my team (laughs) as their team lead. I was making the least amount of money and had the most amount of responsibilities. So needless to say, I went in and I talked with my boss and All of us got reprimanded (laughs) for talking about our pays and it was just, it was bad. And anyways, I ended up leaving that place. But my point is, I was a higher position making less money because we weren't supposed to be talking to each other about what our work agreements were with the company because it was an individual basis. So what happens with these unions is that everybody gets together and they say, you know what, all of the team leads are making less than the new hires that they're working with. So 
How are we going to make sure that this doesn't happen to the next group of people? And how do we make sure that our pay gets increased? All of the team leads and everybody above them gets together and says, hey, company, this is BS. And we're not going to work until you start paying us a comparable wage for what our risk and responsibilities are. That is called collective bargaining. When everybody comes together in solidarity and says, we're going to make sure that there is an equal playing field for every employee in this building. Whether that's, again, a mortgage company, whether that's a school with teachers, whether that's a steel mill, it doesn't matter. It means that everyone agrees to work according to a pay schedule and agrees to take positions according to a seniority schedule. This is extremely beneficial, especially if you're planning to move up the ladder in within whatever organization you're in as a union shop, because that means that you know when you are a team lead, when you are a manager, you are going to be compensated comparably for that and that you are guaranteed to be making more than that new hire does who doesn't understand anything about this job. Now, there's a ton of nuance that goes on with it, of course, but in general, that's what it is. A union is supposed to be a collective bargaining agency where everyone within the union scope agrees to work for a certain pay and for a certain amount of hours. And the company then will agree to certain safety stipulations as well, depending on what it was. Those are all amazing things that unions can do. Everybody comes together. Everybody says, we won't stand for this anymore. The little guy to the top guy. You have to make this fair. You have to make this right. We won't work unless you do. That's great. That's awesome. But then corruption can happen through political channels within the unions. And every single union has democratic elections. And within those elections, if you're running for like union chapter president, you can go to the people with the most seniority and say, hey, I'm going to make sure that you guys get like a 3% raise. So can you make sure that you tell the other guys to vote for me? And how are they going to make sure that that happens? Well, they have to do a bunch of quote unquote negotiations, right? A lot of promises can be made and there's a ton of issues. Union boss history is actually extremely interesting. I'm not going to get into that today. But I, if you're, look, if you're into crime dramas and stuff like that, I highly suggest looking into union situations, especially whenever you're looking at the Teamsters connection to the mob from the 1950s to the 1970s. Also today, but don't tell anybody that I said anything. <laughs> so let's talk about the public teachers unions. Now that we all understand and agree what a union is, it's a collective bargaining agency, and what they're supposed to do. The public teachers unions were created in the mid-1800s. The two largest teachers unions in the United States were created during this time period. The largest one is the National Education Association, the NEA. They were created in 1857. Now, anytime that you're going to see a big teacher strike, or if you're looking like at the Red Fred campaign or something that went on a few years ago, that was led by the NEA. 
And the other one that is pretty much the only competition for the NEA is the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT. That was founded in Chicago in 1916. These two unions make up the majority of teachers within the United States. So here's the question. Is there too much power in too few organizations? Well, I guess that that kind of depends whether you're looking at the working conditions for teachers, learning conditions for students, or the impact they have on local, state, and national politics. And that's the thing, right? If you are a public union, that means that you are being paid by the public through tax dollars. So anytime that the teachers union or any public union for that matter, anytime that they come in and they say that they want to raise or they say that they want better health benefits or they say that they want more funding to get supplies for their classrooms. Now, none of this sounds terrible, but you have to remember that their funding is coming directly from your tax dollars. I live in Ohio and in the state of Ohio, the property tax that you pay goes to the local school districts. Now, everybody's going to say, well, Katie, that's why, that's why low income neighborhoods have bad schools. No, it's not. That's not why low income areas have bad schools. We'll, we'll get into that here in a couple minutes, okay? So what happens when people that are paid by the government lobby the government for that pay? Well, your property taxes go up. Or some states, the districts get paid through state funding. So your state taxes will go up. And I don't know about you, but I literally don't know anybody that wants to pay more in taxes Even if you are somebody that supports more public welfare initiatives and more public school funding, I don't, I literally don't know anybody that wants to pay more taxes. (laughs) So how are you going to fund this? That's a big issue with public unions because every single dollar that they ask for, for whatever reason, comes from the taxpayers. So is there such a thing as a non-union teacher today, okay? Because remember I said that the NEA and the AFT teachers unions take up a large percentage of the teachers in classrooms today in America. So is there such a thing as a non-union teacher today? Well, kind of like the unions themselves, the answer is kind of yes and no at the same time. Here's how the national teachers unions have this set up. And I mean, I kind of have to give them credit. This is freaking genius the way that they set this up. So what they do is the teachers unions come in, they get the school district's employees to join the union. Okay, great. Here's, here's what we're going to do for you. Here's the services that we can provide you. You're going to have to pay us a percentage of your salary for that, okay? And then the school employees say, sure, that sounds great. Sounds like a bargain, right? But what if you say that that doesn't sound real great? What if you're a teacher that stands up and says, I don't really believe in public sector unions, so I don't 
I'm not going to join you guys because I don't really agree with what you're doing. Well, get this. Even if you choose to not become a member of the teachers unions within these school districts that are participants, you still have to pay them. What? I know. Here, Okay, so here's how it works. The teachers unions say, you know what? You guys are going to benefit from the general negotiations that we're going to be doing as a collective bargaining agency for the employees of this district. You are going to be benefiting from that. So even if you don't want to be an official member of our union, you're still benefiting from it. So you're going to be required to pay us since you're benefiting from it because there's no such thing as free, right? So yeah. Let me say that again. Even if you do not want to be a member of the union, you still have to pay them for the privilege of being included in their collective bargaining. What do you do as a teacher? You don't really have a choice. Either you become a member of the teacher's union and essentially announce to the world that you agree with everything that's going on within the unions and that you support everything that they do. Or you say, I don't agree with you and I don't want to be a part of you, but you still have to pay them. How is that fair, right? So it's kind of a lose-lose situation for teachers like me who don't want to be members of this union for many reasons that we're about to get into. Now, here's something that I also wanted to share with you. I had mentioned earlier that my Grammy is a retired third grade teacher. Well, when I came to her and I said, hey, Graham, I think that I'm going to go into teaching because I really have a passion for sharing information and I want to make a difference in people's lives like you did. And she said, okay, well, let's have a conversation about what actually goes on in the schools because you got to see the fun part. So let's talk about what actually goes on. And I was a little bit taken aback by that. And I was like, okay, what do you mean? And she said that the teaching and the classroom and actually interacting with the children is absolutely fabulous and exactly what you think it's going to be. And she was absolutely right. I love teaching. I do with a passion. And when summer comes and all of my private tutoring kids go off for their summer vacations and I don't get to see anybody, I get sad. I miss my kids. But what she told me to be wary of was the politics involved in education. Now, for a woman that had been in the public union as a proud card-carrying member for at least 25 years, I think close to 30. For her to say that, I was very confused. And she told me about different initiatives that the union would participate in. And whenever she didn't want to participate, she was pulled into the office and told that 100% participation was just kind of expected. And she asked what would happen if she didn't want to be a part of this. And she was told again, 100% participation is expected. And it was a monetary deduction from her pay. So why should she be expected to pay into something that she doesn't agree with just because the union expects her to? 
Well, if she's one person, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. As much as I believe that one person can make a difference in the world, I believe that one person can make a difference in the world by empowering others. And she wouldn't have been doing that. So she conceded and said, you know what, whatever, sure, whatever. It was only like a couple bucks a pay, but still, it was the principle of the matter. And she told me that every time a an election season came around or every time the union elections were coming up or every time a contract was coming up, that that was all the union members would talk about. And it took a lot of the focus off of the actual classwork that was supposed to be going on. And I wasn't totally sure. I just kind of thought that she was a little bit jaded from being in it so long. When I actually went into the schools and saw what was going on, I was like, holy crap, (laughs) Grammy was right. She's not just kind of like a jaded old lady. (laughs) Grammy, I love you. I never thought that you were actually a jaded old lady. I was just confused because I had rose-colored glasses on still. Anyways, so with the teachers' unions being so entrenched in every aspect of politics within a school and politics within a community, let's be honest, I think it's important to go back and look at the origins of the teachers' union. Because I told you earlier that this entire discussion was going to be nuanced and that I was going to be kind of back and forth on the fence, you know, whether I agree with it, whether I don't agree with it. You'll find out as you come along on this journey with me to discover the current state of education in America that I agree with a lot of things that were established with good intentions. But what I don't agree with is the bastardization of those good intentions that has happened over the years. And I believe that the teachers unions and unions in general are one of the best examples of how good intentions can be turned into coercive, corrupt organizations very quickly. So understanding where I come from is kind of important to this conversation, as I've stated before. And with teachers unions like the AFT and the NEA exerting the amount of power that they do today, not only on the classroom, but on the political sphere and drum beating for policies that most parents aren't even aware of. It's very important to understand their background, okay? The AFT and the NEA emerged out of a need to protect the teachers from horrible work environments and working conditions, nepotism in the hiring system, political backlash, and to advocate for intellectual freedom. Now, I'm going to make a quick note that I think that it's extremely funny how unions that were initially established to protect intellectual freedom are now the ones trying to quiet any voices that don't hold to their narrative one way or the other. Again, this is on a political basis, not necessarily on an individual teacher's basis, which is why you have the problems that you do today. Again, we'll get into that here in just a little bit. But for now, I just want to make a note here that I think it's extremely funny how the unions that were initially established to advocate for intellectual freedoms are now the ones fighting the teachers in the public school system who have a different idea, a 
of what education should be than the politicized agenda of the teachers unions in their current iteration. Funny, like not in a haha way, but in a dark, ironic sort of way. Getting back to the origins of the teachers unions, they had absolutely valid grievances with what was going on during the mid 1800s. Nepotism in hiring. What does that mean? Nepotism is whenever the people doing the hiring only hire from their own sphere. So that's somebody that isn't necessarily qualified well, they could be, but more oftentimes, if you're talking about nepotism specifically, you're not talking about people that are qualified or good at their jobs. You're talking about the superintendent of a school district whose wife has that idiot nephew that can't get anything else right, but he's going to graduate from teacher's college. He's not good at it, but we'll give him a shot so at least he has a job because auntie loves him and superintendent loves his wife. So he's going to get the job over a fully credentialed and qualified teacher. So that's what nepotism is. Then if you were able to get through this nepotism in the hiring system, you could face political backlash. Now, political backlash doesn't mean like in the voting booth kind of politics. That means if you are at a school district meeting and you're a newer teacher that got hired over somebody's nephew and you said, hey, you know, I've been in the classroom for a little bit with you guys. Here are a couple notes that I have. That means that none of your suggestions will ever be taken because you are there, not because people want you there. And it causes all kinds of problems, right, for the individual. And the goal of political backlash, whether it's when the unions were established or whether it's working at a non-union shop today or even a union shop, actually, is to get you to quit. It's to get you to leave. Now, people like me, fourth generation union, minimum, I really could care less about political backlash. But a lot of people did, and it takes a very strong person to be able to deal with that on an extended basis. It's hard for the strongest of us, let alone people that moved away from home, away from their support system to try and make a better life for themselves. And then you face all of this, we don't want you here, all of your ideas are horrible, and they can even make all of your students hate you to a point where it just makes your life a living hell. That was a real issue. And the advocacy for intellectual freedom, what did that mean? During this time period, remember we're talking about the mid-1800s and the early 1900s, we weren't necessarily talking about a diversity of thought here, but we're talking about more in the scientific realm of education as opposed to like history. Because at this time period, you have Charles Darwin coming out with the theory of evolution. You're moving a little bit farther and farther away from classical biblical ideas I'm pretty sure everybody that would be listening to this particular podcast is aware of those controversies. And they go on today even with creationism versus evolution. But that's mainly what they're talking about with intellectual freedom and also the materials for English teachers, what the diversity of materials that they were able to present 
to their students. Because remember, this is an extremely conservative time. So if you have a book that's a little bit spicy, but is age appropriate and has good aspects of storytelling that you want to share with your students, you need to make sure that there is the ability to have these conversations and to have these books and these ideas available. Because if you remember, the American culture was established by the founding fathers to be free and to elicit intelligent debate between its citizens. And the only way that we can do that is if we have all of the references that other people are using. Because you can either look at them and say, oh, you know what? They're right. That, that's a good point. Or you can look at their references and arguments and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. On the note of making sure that references are available for everyone to back up your argument, I want to make sure that you're aware that all of the references for each episode of the State of Education will be available on our website, one-roomeducation.com. Again, that's one-roomeducation.com. And they will also be available in the description of each episode. So make sure to go ahead and check those if you want to check any of the information that I'm giving during any episode of the State of Education. I just want to make sure that you guys knew where to find those in case you wanted to do some of your own research. The unions in the early days were extremely important and extremely necessary, especially whenever you talk about the hiring practices with the nepotism. And you also have to look at the role that men and women have played within the education system over the years and how that has dramatically changed since the mid 1800s and the second and third wave of the industrial revolution when most of the men were going to work in the factories because it was higher paying jobs and women were left again as they used to be at the founding of the nation to educate the children. So this is just kind of that same idea of Republican motherhood expanded upon and made just kind of huge. One of the things that was happening though, if you were a female in education in the mid 1800s or early 1900s, and this is documented all over the internet and in all kinds of archives. So this isn't like a big secret, at least to anyone that's in education. But I want to make sure to point it out because it is very important to the history and evolution of education. In early education, women were usually preferred because children naturally gravitate towards females for comfort and support. So that's great, right? Absolutely. I have no problems with gender stereotypes like that. Great. It makes our jobs as educators a little bit easier. But what would happen was they would hire these young women, usually just out of college, who weren't married because they were more focused on their education, which happens today too. And when these women would eventually get married, they would be fired because the administration wanted to make sure that there would be no chance that the students could see anything if she would happen to get pregnant or anything. So the unions fought and said that this wasn't fair, that a woman should have the right to get married and be able to keep her job if she chooses. So the unions fought and they got the right for women to maintain their jobs after marriage, which is awesome. (laughs) Great. Slow clap for you, union. Seriously, like that's a great stride forward. I absolutely agree with it. And there was also an issue after the women were allowed to be married and working when a woman would become pregnant. 
whether she was allowed to stay in school and teach or not, or if she would have to take the year off. Because again, this is an extremely conservative time period. And the usually male administrations of these school districts didn't want to have to deal with the whole like sex ed issue. And if there's a woman and she's pregnant, you're gonna have questions if the children don't have pregnant women around them on a normal basis. And they just kind of wanted to avoid any talk of sex, like at all, ever. So if a woman would get pregnant, she would get fired. The unions fought, they made sure that that was repealed. Again, Great. I think that's awesome. If a woman is pregnant and she wants to work or she has to work and she's a teacher, absolutely. I think that that's great. The unions also were able to obtain equal pay for women because like some of the non-union shops today, back in the time period when these unions were established, the women actually did have lower pay than the men because Usually it was viewed that either these women were single and didn't need to support a family like the men did, or that it was just kind of something fun because they were bored. So they didn't expect to support their family off of it anyways. I mean, if you look at it in the context of the time period, that's not horribly off from most of the situations in regards to family and needing to support them. However, that doesn't make it fair and it doesn't make it right that that's what was going on. So the unions came in and they said, you know what, these women are doing the exact same work and oftentimes more when it came to the classroom than the men are. And they deserve at least the same amount of money that men are making. Awesome, great past that. Cool. This is like a women's rights revolution. I'm loving it. There was a report that was created for Congress. It is called The Origin of Unions and Their Application to Teachers. It was written by Brian Pock and submitted to Congress on April 29th of 2017. And I wanted to go ahead and give a little quote out of that as to the importance of teachers unions. In this official report to Congress, Mr. Polk wrote, quote, teachers unions are invaluable in that they check administrative power and the threat of teachers being left out from integral everyday decision-making processes in the education system, unquote. That's true. Absolutely. If you're one teacher out of a group of them, your complaints aren't going to be heard by the administration. But if you band together as a union, as a collective in bargaining with the district, then yes, absolutely. You as the individual teacher, as part of the collective, are going to have more power over the everyday happenings within your classroom and within the district in and of itself. Now, Everything that I have mentioned thus far in this section has been good, right? We're getting equal pay for women. We're making it so that women have the right to work, whether they're married or pregnant or have children. And we're also looking at the improvement of the working conditions for these teachers as well. Great. Now, why did the working conditions need improved in the first place, right? Because we know that teachers have amazing salaries. They have great benefits and they only have 20 kids per class. What are they complaining about, right? We're going to go back and look at the working conditions that sparked these teachers to band together into a collective bargaining entity to correct them. Because if you remember the 
main purpose of the teachers union was to improve their working conditions because they had like no funding. They had students who had no idea what they were talking about most of the time and they lacked a basic foundational education and whenever you look specifically at where these teachers unions were established you're looking at Chicago you're looking at other major metropolitan areas that makes a big difference if you look at rural teachers versus urban teachers and we're going to be talking about this a lot coming up in the future episodes of the state of education about the differences between urban suburban and rural educations and why those differences occur when we talk about the early teachers unions we're talking about urban school districts so chicago And what we're talking about specifically is that they lacked any sort of funding pretty much because of the industrial environment. If it was anything past learning how to read and write and do basic math, the people that were involved in these urban manufacturing centers that were involved in the creation of the curriculum for these urban manufacturing centers, they could give two craps less whether their employees could read Shakespeare or Aristotle. They cared whether their employee could read the instructions to do their section of that job. And anything past that was actually kind of discouraged. And this is where the intellectual freedom part comes in because if it was past that, the teachers would actually get harassed. Yes, absolutely. If you're working in an environment where your kids are hungry and there is no such thing as school provided lunches or breakfasts back then. If you're looking at an environment where you can't afford to heat your classroom with coal or natural gas or wood, depending on where you lived. If you're looking at these sort of environments, how can they expect these kids to learn? So Absolutely, I agree that these unions needed established to fix this. But here's the thing, with public unions, they are funded by what? That's right, the public funds, as we keep talking about. Anytime that something goes on where they need more money and that money is granted to them, then that money has to come out of somewhere else to go there. So you want your kids to have better quality books? Okay, then you have to deal with the potholes. Do you want your kids to be able to have a lunch provided for them because you're really busy and you're gone before they go to school in the morning so that you can make a living for them? So you want the school to provide them with lunches? Okay, then you might have to wait an extra couple hours to get plowed out if you live in the Northeast like we do. There's give and take. It's called opportunity costs. With every choice that you make, on where to spend the money, it must come from somewhere else. Or in the case of the public sector, they can increase your taxes on your home or some states have a dedicated school tax that you have to pay. I know that some parts of the state of Pennsylvania have dedicated school taxes. It's not included in your property tax there. 
So what happens is people demand more and more out of these education systems that don't have anything to actually do with the education of the children. The administrations require more and more money to keep the ship steering straight. And the teachers, because of the inflation and the cost of living over time, they also require more and more money for their salaries. Not necessarily because they're greedy. I mean, okay, that does happen. But for the majority of teachers, including myself, the only thing we wanted to do was be able to pay our rent, pay for gas to get to work, and eat that week. And to be totally honest, depending on where you're getting your initial teaching job, that could be an extreme struggle. Because for some reason, and I don't understand this thought process, but it's just... It's not just in unions, it's just like general human nature. If something happened to you, you're going to want to see somebody else have to have that embarrassment and degradation as well to make you feel better about yourself and what you did. But because of this general mindset of it happened to me, so now I'm going to watch you go through it and feel better about my experience... It makes it extremely hard for new teachers coming into the education system to be able to support themselves. And nowadays, it's not just women coming straight out of college that are trying to get into teaching. And the ability to support a family on a $32,000 a year salary is extremely hard, especially whenever you're looking at the communities that are paying this sort of money. If you have a dog not even a kid, if you have a dog or another animal that you're responsible for that's going to take some of that money, it's extremely hard to get off the ground. And I'm not saying that teachers should be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because they're that important. I'm saying that if they live in a city or a town where the average rent cost is $1,500 a month for a studio apartment, I think that they should make more than thirty to $32,000 a year because they have car expenses or travel expenses to get back and forth to work. They have all of the extra materials that they're expected to provide for the classroom. And on top of that, they need to eat. They need to have a phone. They need to have internet nowadays to be able to teach. All of these things, yeah, you can get a tax deduction for them, but it's nowhere near the amount of money that you spend. I guarantee you. Yeah, Teachers unions need to be there in some form to help make sure that the salaries of these first year teachers and above are keeping up with the general rate of yearly inflation. But again, like I said, these first year teacher salaries aren't worth anything anyways for the most part. And you have to have some sort of safety net to be able to go into education in general mainly because of the teachers unions and that's the double-edged sword that unions cause. It is a collective so it's the same for everyone and if you are a woman that needs to support your family then this might not be the career path for you as a first-year teacher because it doesn't really matter what your educational experience is. Everybody gets the same salary for whichever year you're teaching. I now interrupt your regularly scheduled listening program for a very important message. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But for real, when I was editing this episode, I realized that the amount of time it was going to take me to give you a full picture of the scope of what's going on with the teachers unions 
took way longer than I thought it would. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to break this episode in half. So I'm going to go ahead and end it here with content. And I will pick it up next week with a part two of the teachers unions, good or bad for your children. If you found today's episode informative, please go ahead and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whichever platform you happen to be listening to it on. And if you want to make sure that you get updates every time that a new episode is posted, you can go ahead and go over to one-roomeducation.com, the word one, O-N-E, dash room education.com and I have a full section over there that has all of the references and resources that I use for all of my episodes and it also has links directly to each individual episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today and it was a little bit thought-provoking for you, go ahead and head over to the website and you can see the full list of references and you can do your own deep dive. Until next week when I post part two of the teachers unions, good or bad for your children. I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sticking with me. This is a very muddy and mucky subject and I want to make sure again that you get the best content and the fullest picture possible when I'm presenting it to you to make sure that all of the information is clear so that you can then go ahead and share it with others. Speaking of sharing, If you would like to see behind the scenes content and so much more, please make sure to go ahead and follow us on social media. On Facebook, I am at One Room Education, all one word. And on Instagram, I am at One Room underscore Education. Thank you so much for visiting me again today. And I can't wait to see you next week because next week, We dive in to what's actually going on in modern classrooms and what teachers unions are actually doing today to the on the ground teachers and your students while they're in the care of the schools. I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait to hear your comments on it. Anyways, with that being said, thank you so much for visiting me and I'll see you next week as we discuss the state of education.